welcome to the Park Road Podcast for April 27, 2014. Today's podcast features a short reflection on resurrection by Russ Dean, followed by a sermon given by Amy Jacks Dean, co-pastor with Russ at Park Road Baptist Church. Her sermon this week is entitled, Not Seeing is Believing. Pastor number two is at about the same place as pastor number one. My arms are still long enough that I can read the hymns. I may not be quite as honest as Amy is, but she reminds me that I am 50 and she's not. (laughs) Last week, we introduced a series for Eastertide. My sermon last week was entitled, Witnesses to resurrection. Witnesses, plural. Tom Long, the preacher, the teacher of preachers, says there are five distinctive experiences of resurrection that we find in John's gospel. Five different ways that people experienced the risen Christ. Five different ways that they believed. For the next five Sundays, we're going to be looking at those five different experiences. Maybe you will find your own experience in one of those five experiences. Or maybe yours is across all five. Or maybe yours is different entirely. Witnesses to resurrection. Amy will preach the next five Sundays. And what I want to do with you in two pages or less each Sunday is a little study about resurrection, a different angle on resurrection. Today, a word study. Next week, we'll look at what the Old Testament says, the origins of biblical understanding of resurrection. The next week, we'll look at a Jewish understanding of the general resurrection. Each week, a different angle on resurrection in hopes that during this Easter season, we all will gain a new perspective, a new vision on resurrection. Witnesses. What is your witness to resurrection? According to the Global Language Monitor, as of January the 1st of this year, there were 1,025,109.8 words in the English language. I don't know how you get 0.8 of a word, but that's how many there were January the 1st. And a new word being created every 98 minutes in our language. Some are more important than others, but for Christians, no word in our vocabulary is more important than resurrection. But what does it mean? Resurrection, what does it mean? Sometimes we need to look again. You've probably had the experience that I have. Occasionally I write a word on a piece of paper, a simple word that I've known for years that I've written a hundred times, and suddenly that word looks like something I've never seen before. Have you done that? It's like, how do you spell cat? That doesn't look right, you know? This morning, let me invite you to write the word resurrection in your mind's eye, and I want you to pretend that you have never seen the word before. That's a little bit how I felt this week when I studied this word. 
For years now, I have consistently chosen my words regarding the Easter event, and I've chosen them carefully. I believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. I do not believe in Jesus' physical resuscitation. Resurrection, not resuscitation. It's the words that I use But if you look carefully at the words in the Bible, you will find no such distinction. Two virtually interchangeable Greek words can refer to rising from the dead. Anistemi can be translated to awaken, to rise up from bed, especially if you're sick or lame. More figuratively, that word connotes rising up in enmity or installing someone to a function and more literally the word can be used to refer to setting up a pillar or a column. The book of Acts includes one of the Bible's several death to life miracles. Peter learns of a girl who had died so we read Peter arose, Anastas, arose and went to them and when he found the girl he said to her Tabitha Anastathy get up rise up stand up the verb Ijiro has nearly the same meaning to awaken to rouse to lift up rear up rise up to stand up The oldest reference to Jesus' resurrection comes from the Apostle Paul, maybe only 20 years after Jesus' death. Paul says simply, he has been Egyro, raised up. He got up. But does that explain it? He got up? Got up from what? Was he really dead? He got up? How? Was he really alive? And was he the same after as he was before? He got up. Our 21st century enlightened minds ask such skeptical questions. Though our doctors routinely resuscitate patients in a manner worthy of being called miraculous by an ancient observer. In that world, there was no such skepticism. It wasn't as hard for them to believe someone has been raised from the dead. Even the educated Greeks who taught that resurrection was impossible, paradoxically, even the Greeks made room in their understanding for an isolated miracle. Aesculapius, the physician, was also known to the Greeks as one who raised the dead. From the very beginning, though, the way the Bible talks about the rising up of Jesus makes it clear that the writers believed whatever had happened was different, different, even than the impossible possibility of being resuscitated from death. Most of our understanding of resurrection comes from the Apostle Paul, who never knew Jesus until the risen Christ appeared to him on the Damascus Road. 
The word Paul uses there is interesting too. He uses the same word to describe all of Jesus' resurrection experiences. Jesus appeared to Mary. Jesus appeared to Peter. Jesus appeared to the disciples. Jesus appeared years later to Paul. Same word makes it sound like the same experience. If you've been to your ophthalmologist lately, you will recognize the word that Paul uses, ophthe. That word appeared, ophthe, is the same word used of visitation of angels. The Bible has no problem reporting the appearance of an angel. And Paul uses the same word for Jesus' appearances to Mary and Peter and the disciples and to himself. But Paul begins to speak of the rising up of Jesus and his appearance as if they were categorically different even than any event that had occurred ever before. In Athens, Paul defends his newfound faith before a group of philosophers who thought Paul believed in two deities He kept speaking of Jesus and Anastasis. Oh, not a god named Jesus and a goddess named Anastasis. Paul was speaking of Jesus and the resurrection. Jesus and Anastasis. But the word just means he got up. So what does resurrection mean? Reginald Fuller says it this way in the Mercer Dictionary of the Bible. You can buy it off the shelf at any bookstore. The resurrection, while a real event according to the unanimous testimony of the New Testament, is not historical in the sense that ordinary events are. It occurs at the point where history ends and God's end-time kingdom begins, and it is not itself an observable occurrence. No one saw God raise Jesus from the dead, nor can it be verified. In a sense, resurrection is an inference from the disciples' Easter visions. Do you get that? In a sense, resurrection is an inference from the disciples' Easter visions. The words just mean he got up. Only the spiritual encounter of the disciples of Jesus, their experience and our own, determines what resurrection really means. Christ is risen indeed. You decide for yourself. For the next five weeks, we are exploring the post-Easter resurrection appearances of Jesus. Every Sunday won't be your Sunday. You know, the Sunday where you say, yep, that's how Jesus came to me. There may be a part of you in every Sunday. There may be some Sundays where you can't relate at all 
but the hope is that you will be able to find yourself in at least one of these Sundays, which means that you've got to be here five weeks in a row. You see what we did there? To get you to come to church every week. The hope is that this won't be so much about how Jesus appeared to the disciples 2,000 years ago or how Jesus has appeared to you in the past as much as how Jesus might just appear to you right now. And what difference will it make if he does? So I hope that you will be able to think creatively and metaphorically and non-judgmentally. That last one will be the hardest for some of you. I will not call names. But as we make our way through some of the most unbelievable parts of Scripture, it will call on your creativity and your non-judgmental nature. The very first witnesses to the resurrection saw nothing. Not a thing. Emptiness. That's it. An open entrance, a few strips of cloth, a vacated cave, an empty tomb. That's it. And one of them believed. He believed what? Now, try to forget what you already know. Try to forget that more resurrection appearances loom in the next four weeks. Try to forget that these are the stories that have held the church together for more than 2,000 years. Try to picture yourself as if you didn't know the story, arriving at the tomb to tend the dead body of your friend to pay your respects, to sit at graveside and just cry your heart out. And you find nothing. Grave robbers must have been on Mary's mind. And so you do what any sensible person would do. You run to get help. Did you hear me emphasize all the running that was going on? There's just running everywhere in this text. Mary runs to get Peter and the disciple that Jesus loved. And then the two men set off running in a foot race. And I'm assuming that Mary was running very close behind. Peter gets left in the dust by the disciple that Jesus loved. And arrives, and the disciple that Jesus loves arrives on the scene first. Sometimes I think we read scripture so blandly that we miss the action. We forget what's going on. They were racing around in a frantic sin, scene of chaos. Jesus' body was gone. And so the disciple that Jesus loved arrived, doubled over in exhaustion, huffing and puffing to catch his breath. And he reaches the place where Jesus is supposed to be. And in this very first occasion for what we know as resurrection appearances, he sees nothing. He doesn't even go inside. He just stands at the entrance. And the text says it simply, he saw and believed. But the text is missing a word. 
It should say, he saw nothing and believed. Is that your story? No questions asked. No inquiry made. No trying to put the puzzle pieces together. No Sherlock Holmes investigation. He saw nothing and believed. Mary wasn't there yet, neither was Peter. But even as they arrived, first Peter and then Mary right behind him, there's no mention of what they were thinking at this point. We'll get to them later. But Peter leaves the disciple that Jesus loves standing right at the door and he goes inside. The beloved disciple didn't even need to explore around in there. He just stood at the entrance, saw nothing, and believed. This beloved disciple's salvation story was that there was never a time that he didn't believe. Wow. That's my story. From the time I was itty-bitty, there hasn't been a time that I didn't know about Jesus and believe wholeheartedly in Him. There's never been a moment when I didn't want to give my life to him and follow him. My parents took me to church just about every single time the doors were open since I was before I can remember. And even on the times when I didn't really want to go, I never didn't believe. I never had one of those big aha moments. It's all been so normal and so easy. I didn't need a plane to skyride it for me. I didn't need a bolt of lightning to shake me up. Don't get me wrong. I remember yearning for a great conversion story like some folks have. You know, where you're that terrible drug addict and dealer about to throw your life away when all of a sudden you see Jesus and your life is changed forever. I mean, who doesn't want a good story like that? Mine and the beloved disciple's story is boring. I always wanted an Anne Lamott conversion. It's so fun and glamorous, I guess unless you've lived it. I've told her story before, but I just love it so much I'm going to tell it to you again. You must read her book, Traveling Mercies. She was going through a tough time in her life, addicted to alcohol and cocaine, and just having had an abortion of a child that was conceived in an affair with a married man. I mean, that's good stuff right there. If you're going to get converted, you want that kind of story, don't you? In the week after, her, after the abortion, she took to the bed with alcohol and painkillers. She writes, after a while, as I lay there, I became aware of someone with me hunkered down in a corner. And I just assumed it was my father whose presence I felt over the years when I was frightened and alone. The feeling was so strong that I actually turned on the light for a moment to make sure no one was there, and of course, there wasn't. But after a while in the dark again, I knew beyond any shadow of a doubt that it was Jesus. 
I felt him as surely as I feel my dog lying nearby as I write this, and I was appalled. I thought about my life and my brilliant, hilarious, progressive friends, and I thought about what everyone would think of me if I became a Christian, and it seemed an utterly impossible thing that simply could not be allowed to happen. I turned to the wall and I said out loud, I would rather die. Finally, I fell asleep, and in the morning, he was gone, thank God. This experience spooked me badly, but then everywhere I went, I had the feeling like a little cat was following me, wanting me to reach down and pick it up, wanting me to open the door and let it in. But I knew what would happen. You let a cat in one time, give it milk, and they'll be with you forever. So I tried to keep one step ahead of it. One week, I ended up in a church so hungover that I couldn't stand up for the songs. But this time I stayed for the sermon, which was just so absolutely ridiculous, like someone trying to convince me of the existence of extraterrestrials. But the song at the end was so deep and raw and pure that I could not escape. I began to cry. I left before the benediction. I raced home, and I felt that little cat running at my heels. I opened the door to my houseboat, and I stood there a minute, and then I hung my head, and I said, and I'm going to clean it up for you, Forget it. I quit. I took a long, deep breath and said out loud, All right, you can come in. And that little Jesus cat has been with her ever since. Now that's a resurrection story I want. Minus the drugs and alcohol and affair and all of that. But the beloved disciple and I don't get that story. Jesus has never appeared to me. Never. No voice, no image, no tangible evidence, no facts, nothing I can get my hands on. There's no proof. There's no verification. There's no confirmation. And I've never needed it. I have known something in my gut that has never needed to see anything. I'll believe it when I see it is a much used phrase. We tend to be a people that like proof. Our whole legal system is based on beyond a shadow of a doubt. If the glove doesn't fit, you must acquit. The beloved disciple's intuition told him that when there was nothing there to see, he believed in the good news of resurrection that new life was possible. What does your gut tell you? Can you trust your gut about this whole faith thing? Some of you really have no idea what I'm talking about. This is not your story. Hold on. Doubting Thomas is coming, and you are going to be right at home. And the people that are right there with me today are going to say, I have no foggy idea about that Doubting Thomas. 
But I'll tell you what I am discovering as I make my way through John's chapter 20. In some way, I find my own experience of the appearance of Jesus in each and every week, which says to me that Jesus is always trying to appear to me. I have not seen. I do believe. May it be so for you as well. Amen. Thanks for listening today. We invite you to learn more about Park Road at parkroadbaptist.org. Park Road is a progressive faith community located in Charlotte, North Carolina, encouraging independent thought, community service, social justice, and interfaith understanding. Grace and peace to you.